This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. Are you enjoying the gorgeous fall colors? I know up here in northern New England, we are a little ahead of the curve regarding the leaves changing color. So far, this has been a spectacular year for leaf peeping. There seems to be a robustness to the colors of the trees this year. Perhaps it was the overabundance of rain that we had. Autumn signals a downshifting in nature. While birds fly south for the winter, wildlife like squirrels and chipmunks scramble to store away those last few nuts to get them through the cold months. Other animals like bears and turtles look for cozy places to hibernate. With the crisper, colder air, we also shift into hibernation mode, spending more time indoors and enjoying its comforts, like a roaring fire in the fireplace and a hot mug of tea. We go from being outdoors, planting, to indoors, dreaming and scheming. A pause in our activity outside allows us time to plan new planting beds and to read about native plants we would like to add next year. And while I certainly miss being in my gardens once the first frost occurs, my head is already dancing with ideas about next year's native habitat exploits. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be talking with highly acclaimed nature writer and photographer John Shuey about his new book, The Hummingbird Handbook. We'll be discussing the fall migration of hummingbirds, along with what to do and what not to do to help these birds reach their overwintering habitat. And now for some interesting news. Yet another study is showing that sense of smell plays a crucial role in the survival of birds. New research from the University of California at Riverside is showing that hummingbirds rely on their sense of smell to avoid danger. Because hummingbirds have small olfactory bulbs, scientists had long believed the bird did not employ its sense of smell while foraging among flowers for nectar. However, the new study, published in the Journal of Behavioral Ecology and Sociobiology, is showing that hummingbirds will avoid flowers harboring poisonous insects and that they use their sense of smell to detect the presence of these insects. For their experiment, the scientists gave hummingbirds the opportunity to choose between two feeders, one containing sugar water and another containing sugar water and chemicals that mimic the scent of formic acid from ants, which can be harmful to birds. The hummingbirds avoided the feeders containing the formic acid scent. Aaron Wilson-Rankin, associate entomology professor and the study's co-author, said the research raises new questions about the role that scent plays in a bird's foraging decisions. A recent study is showing that birds greatly benefited from the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
The study, published in Science Advances, is showing the pause in human activity in the early months of the pandemic, referred to as anthropause, helped bird populations thrive in otherwise noisy urban areas they had long avoided due to high levels of human activity. Researchers from the University of Manitoba's Natural Resources Institute compared records of sightings of nearly 90 bird species. A total of 4.3 million birds in Canada and the United States from March through May of 2020. This was a time when most cities were in full coronavirus lockdown. Because people remained home from work during that period of the pandemic, there were fewer cars on the road and less noise. There were also fewer airline flights, resulting in less air pollution. Some of the areas studied showed an increase in birds of up to 20%. If birds could vote, they would say, please stay at home. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce John Shuey. John is a highly renowned nature writer and photographer, and he has written a stellar new book on hummingbirds. Titled The Hummingbird Handbook, this guide contains astonishing facts, practical advice, and important ecological information for the hummingbird enthusiast. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Now, thank you for having me, Catherine. It's definitely one of my favorite subjects, so I always enjoy talking about it. Yeah, mine too. So I'm so glad that you could join us today. Now, you've, you've written the book, The Hummingbird Handbook, and I understand it just went into paperback recently. Am I correct? It came out in April and uh, came out as both a paperback edition and an ebook edition. And as my understanding is that it has already gone into a second printing. So apparently we hit a bit of a nerve amongst outdoor enthusiasts and backyard gardening enthusiasts. Apparently a whole lot of people out there appreciate and enjoy hummingbirds. Wow, that is fantastic. So now I did read it and I enjoyed it very much. So tell me, why did you decide to write about hummingbirds? Well, there's a backstory there, as you might imagine, Catherine. In 2012, my friend Tim Blunt and I were out in southeastern Oregon doing a bird photography trip for about five days, working on a project for a field guide called Birds of the Pacific Northwest. And to give you an idea of, of a landscape, southeastern Oregon is composed of three counties, each one of which is about the size of Vermont. And in total, that part of, of Oregon, imagine three states the size of Vermont, or three counties the size of Vermont, but only having about 20,000 people. So there are way more cattle and horses in those three counties than there are actual human beings. So it's amongst the most remote country in the American West. But there's a variety of indigenous birds that live out in that country that, that are native to those habitats. So Tim and I were on a week-long expedition to photograph some of these birds for our field guide. We were up on top of a place called Hart Mountain, nearly 8,000 feet, and it was June 1st, 2012, and uh, we went over to the little U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service headquarter building that has some flowering shrubs around at that time of year, and we noticed hummingbirds buzzing around. And we started photographing the hummingbirds because we recognized that we were looking at broad-tailed hummingbirds, which are extremely rare in Oregon. So we were very, very lucky to find them in that location or anywhere in the state of Oregon. 
So as we photographed these hummingbirds, we realized that there was one that didn't quite fit. And when I pulled up the photos of this particular male on my camera, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. I had to ask him if he was seeing the same thing, but it was a male ruby-throated hummingbird. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, way outside its normal range. This turned out to be only the third confirmed ruby-throated hummingbird for the state of Oregon, as you might imagine, being so far from their native range. And it, it really set me to thinking and wondering in terms of, you know, what was that bird's journey? Where had it come from? How had it gotten so far off course? And probably more importantly, where would it go from there? Where, how would his life end up? And it was such an intriguing set of questions for me that I, I think that really launched my, my deeper interest into hummingbirds. I'd, I've been a bird watcher and a bird enthusiast my whole life, but I'd never had any particular interest in hummingbirds beyond all the other types of birds. But that particular day really sort of launched my, uh, my interest in these, in these amazing little birds. So tell me, why is it that so many people love hummingbirds? Like, what, what is it about the hummingbird that has particularly Americans enthralled? I know at the approach of every spring, people get so excited. They follow the migration websites and they get their nectar feeders ready to go. What is it about hummingbirds? I think they're so enigmatic, Catherine. I think one of the things that, that people find so attractive about them is that they are these tiny little bundles of hyperactivity. They operate at speeds that we can't really decipher. And at the same time, the males, at least, are such glittering little jewels. And I think when you combine the fact that they're these miniature jewels that live at this hyperspeed existence, it's just fascinating to people. And the other part of it is when you have these little hyperspeed bejeweled birds that you can cater to, that you can actually attract to your flowers and to your feeders, and you can enjoy them close up and watch them in real time, very close. And, you know, it's very easy to anthropomorphize hummingbirds. And I see this all the time, you know, on, on social media, there's a number of different hummingbird-centric sites on Facebook and Instagram, and you'll see them anthropomorphized probably more than any other bird, where people are, are naming their, their little hummingbird that spends the summer there and having all these other verbiage that, that really shows you how much people adore these little birds. But I, I do think it's that combination of they're kind of approachable, meaning that they're they're uh, inquisitive by nature. You can draw them to your backyard. We don't really understand them. They're, they're, they're enigmatic, and they're also so darn colorful. So I think those, those are the factors that make uh, hummingbirds so appealing. They are. They're very charming and charismatic. <laughs> and, and belligerent. And, and, uh, <laughs> they have and personalities. <laughs> they're fun to watch. They are. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things about hummingbirds is most species are highly combative. And that's part of the fun, you know, of, of watching them is they're highly territorial. Most of the species are. And they have these warp speed battles going on all day long in your yard if you have more than one. And uh, so that's part of the intrigue as well, I think. It is, yeah. So in your book, you also mentioned some new discoveries that have been made about hummingbirds recently. Could you talk about that for a minute? Sure. And, and you know, on that note, it seems like there's a, a new discovery made every two or three every year about these birds, because one of the things that really aided in the study of hummingbirds was high-speed motion photography, of course. And But, you know, despite all the, the discoveries that involved high-speed motion photography in terms of their flight patterns and, and their feeding patterns and things like that, one of the things that I think is most fascinating that's a fairly recent discovery is the lifespan of hummingbirds. You know, when I was growing up, 
it was just assumed that a hummingbird, you know, might live two or three years because they're so tiny. And, you know, the trend in, in animal life is that larger animals live longer. So, you know, it was just always just assumed decades ago that they were short-lived animals. Well, it turns out, thanks to bird banders who are, especially the specialist bird banders who capture and ban hummingbirds, it's been determined now that most of these species have examples where the bird is 8 or 9 or 10 or even 11 or 12 years old. So the, the, long, the longest-lived hummingbirds captured so far was a female broad-tailed hummingbird that was more than 12 years old. So what will happen, of course, if your, your, your listeners aren't familiar with bird banding, is they'll set up a trapping system that's harmless to the hummingbird at known hummingbird hotspots. And they'll trap the hummingbirds, and professional handlers will very briefly take measurements and put the tiniest, you can imagine how tiny a metal leg band has to be on a hummingbird, but they'll put the tiniest of leg bands on that hummingbird that has a number on it. And then hopefully somewhere along that bird's migratory journey, either that year or years later, they'll recapture that same bird and be able to make some determinations about its life and its migration paths and that sort of thing. So the one that they recaptured 12 years later down in Colorado was a female broadtail that was more than 12 years old. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah. So tell me about the ruby-throated hummingbird. That's really the hummingbird that's most that most New Englanders are, are likely to see in their backyards. No question. You know, through some quirk of, of evolutionary geography, the entire eastern half of the continent has one single species of breeding hummingbird. Whereas when you come across the Great Plains and into the mountainous west, you know, we have eight or nine different species. So it's it's interesting that you only have that one widespread species throughout more than half of the continent. But the ruby-throated, you know, of course, it holds sway over a massive geography, but otherwise it's very similar to the, the Western species in its migration habits and in its habitat preferences. But anywhere you find hummingbirds, you're going to find that they have co-evolved with uh, other species, especially flowering plants and things. So, you know, one thing about the northernmost hummingbird species, now if you think about it, the ruby throat and the rufous and a few of the other western species are the northernmost species of about 340 different species of hummingbirds found in the Americas. So North America has, if you include Mexico, has oh, about three dozen different species of hummingbirds. But Central America and South America have over 300 species. These northernmost species, like the ruby throat, they've co-evolved also with some other birds. One great example is the, uh, the sapsucker family of woodpeckers. So these sapsuckers, if you, if you were to take a, a range map of the different sapsuckers, but particularly the yellow-bellied sapsucker found in, throughout most of the continent, especially back east, and overlay that with a range map of the ruby-throated hummingbird, you would find that the ruby-throated hummingbird's range map essentially fits within the range map of the sapsucker. And there's a reason for that. That's because sapsuckers, as their name might imply, they drill holes in trees to get at that sap, and the sap has a fairly high sugar content. So while the hummingbirds feed primarily on flower nectar, they've also evolved to take advantage of that other sugar source, which is the uh, sap from trees, and the only way they can get it at it is if, if something actually opens up the tree. And in that case, the sapsucker is doing the job for them, so they'll actually kind of follow the sapsucker sugar trail. Right. And one of the other things about that is if you look at migration timing, sapsuckers arrive back north a little bit ahead of the, of the hummingbirds. Uh-huh. Kind of paving a gravy train for them. <laughs> and it stands to reason, too, that hummingbirds can access that sap on the trees. They're 
quite the little aerial acrobats, aren't they? They, they can are hover amazing. like helicopters, and they can even fly backwards. So they can access the bark on the trees to get to that sap. Absolutely. As long as those uh, the woodpeckers provide the holes and get the sap to drain, then the hummingbirds will just hover right at the tree trunks and uh, lap up that sap just like they would flower nectar in a way. Wow. So I think our interview is well-timed. Uh, I think since hummingbirds have either left the area already to migrate south for the winter or are getting ready to migrate, can you tell me where most of them are headed? Yeah, sure. I mean, most hummingbirds in the United States, and, and by that I mean the, the northernmost species. So that would include, of course, your ruby throats. And are out here in, where I live in the far west, we have rufus and annas and black chins and calliopes and broadtails. And they all spend their winter in Mexico. The ruby throats are especially interesting because when they make their northward migration to their breeding territory, they expand into such a massive breeding range, but then they all funnel back to a, a much smaller Mexican wintering range. But a, a large percent of the, of the ruby throat population actually has to make a twice annual journey over the Gulf of Mexico. And it's really an amazing journey because they figure it takes probably about a day for them to do that, 18 to 24 hours. And this is a bird that has to refuel frequently. So these birds gather in big numbers down on the Gulf Coast and put on a significant amount of body weight in both flower nectar and, and sugar water and insects and, and other you know small prey that they eat. And they gain body weight before they make that cross-Gulf migration. And then they have to do it again when the spring migration comes. So it's an incredible migration. I mean, the, the distance that a bird – remember, these birds weigh about as much as two American pennies. And yet they cover these incredible distances. The all-time distance record is probably the Rufus hummingbird. They actually have a banding study on one female that was banded down in Florida in February and then was recaptured up in Alaska later that year. So as a, as a crow flies, about 4,000 miles. Wow. That's a long, long flight. For a two-and-a-half-inch bird. Yeah, amazing. So now how long does it take typically for a hummingbird to migrate back to its winter hideout? It varies significantly with the location and the species, but you can actually kind of, like you were saying, you can track that with some of the websites and also with some of the, the Cornell bird website. But, uh, for example, my local Rufus hummingbirds here in my yard, the adult males will arrive typically in the first half of March, and they will depart usually by July 4th. So they're gone a long, long time. But I, I always ask my friend Tim, who lives down in southern Arizona, you know, what's your, uh, what are you thinking in terms of how long it takes a Rufus from here to get to you in southern Arizona if it were to do that? And he said it's probably not as long as you might think. He said it's probably just a matter of two or three weeks, which kind of surprised me because they, they, they have to make a lot of stops. Right. So they're making uh, stops for some quick nectar to power up and take off again. Yeah. In fact, I had all of my female. It's always sad when my Rufus hummingbirds leave. But all my females and juveniles left here about two weeks ago. And then one week later, well, let me, let me give you the backstory. I have in my yard, I have Anna's hummingbirds and Rufus hummingbirds. And this year was a pretty good year for the nesting success, I think, because I ended up having six or seven Anna's hummingbirds of all ages and sexes. And I had about the same number of rufous hummingbirds of all ages and sexes. Now, that started out with two adult male rufous that showed up this spring. They left early. 
And then all the females left. Now, the rufous hummingbird is one of the most belligerent and combative and aggressive of all species. So they badger the poor Anna's hummingbirds into submission. I mean, <laughs> sometimes the, the, the poor Anna's are afraid to come out sometimes. But when all the rufous finally left here two weeks ago, all the females and juveniles, it sort of became, you know, a little more peaceful around the yard for the Anna's hummingbirds, which still fight amongst themselves. But at least they don't have to deal with the, the highly combative Anna, or rufous hummingbirds chasing them around and and uh, badgering them off all their favorite flowers and feeders. But then a week later, one single female rufus showed up. So that would be a rufus that was had spent the summer farther north. And in the course of its migration south, it saw my yard and my flowers and feeders and thought that looks like a pretty good place to stop and refuel. And she ended up staying for two days. And in that time, that single rufous female caused absolute chaos amongst my resident <laughs> population of Anna's hummingbirds. They, they, thought they'd, they thought they were free for the rest of the summer and fall, oh, and no. sure enough, this little rufous shows up and terrorizes them. <laughs> <laughs> so she stayed for two days, and so that, that uh, gives you some indication. You know, sometimes a migrant will stop in for refueling just for a short time, and sometimes they'll stick around for a couple of days. There's that old tale about... You know, we need to take our hummingbird feeders down in the fall to make sure that we don't prevent the hummingbirds from migrating. But that's not true. Their instinct for migration is far, far more powerful than their draw to that, that hummingbird feeder. So it is actually important for people to keep those hummingbird feeders up and keep their flowers maintained for as long as possible during the fall just to make sure that any stragglers that are late migrants will have a, a food source. I was just going to ask you that because, you know, we get a lot of migrants from Canada that come through after our hummingbirds leave to go south mm -hmm. and they show up here sometimes exhausted. I've actually seen hummingbirds fall asleep on a feeder after yeah. feeding. They're yeah. so tired. So I try to keep my feeders up as long as possible to the point where, you know, I'm not where the nectar is or the sugar water is freezing, but while the temperatures, temperatures are still fairly moderate, I will leave the feeder out as long as I possibly can. I think all of your readers should practice that as well, just to make sure that we're accommodating those last few migrants. Right. And that leads me to another question now. Um, if a New England hummingbird enthusiast wanted to help migrating hummingbirds, what would be some native plants, flowering native plants at that time of the year that would help them refuel on their way down? Yeah, and that's a great question. So when we plant flowers specifically to attract hummingbirds, we do want to keep in mind the seasonality of it. You know, what flowers can you plant that will bloom early? And what flowers can you plant that will continue blooming late? And, it, you know, of course, the one thing you have to consider is your climate zone. Here in where I live in the, in the Pacific Northwest, we're in a temperate climate. I think I could grow about anything without even knowing how to do it. But there are some, you know, some natives back there that are late summer bloomers, one of which is the cardinal flower which is, uh, I actually keep a few in pots here in my yard specifically so I can have those late summer blooms. Here in, in Western Oregon, the cardinal flowers that I have, they don't start blooming until August, early August, maybe late July, and they continue to bloom until late September. And another one that, that I really like are the uh, the bee balms, the monarda, another native species that is kind of an all-summer bloomer. And, uh, they're, I've, you know, I've found that even I can't kill a monarda. They seem to be very simple to grow and maintain, and they're robust and, and hardy, you know, and they're just, they're a great uh, long bloom period flower. So I think it's important, you know, there's there's thousands of different flowering plants that hummingbirds love. 
And as long as you're kind of matching those flowers to your climate zone so that you're getting good growth rates and hardiness, uh, and then you just sort of plan for the season. So if your hummingbirds like mine show up in March, you know, I have to try to accommodate them with at least a few early blooming flowers and then continue to accommodate them through the hot part of summer and, and well into fall. And then here in the Pacific Northwest, we actually have a year-round hummingbird, which is the Anna's hummingbird. And that's not a historical year-round hummingbird. They actually responded to humanity and our penchant for growing flowers and expanded their range northward from Southern California all the way to British Columbia. And their range is still expanding. So they haven't had time to evolve a migration route out of here. So they spend all winter. So Northwesterners have learned and are continuing to learn how to accommodate and how to help hummingbirds during the dead of winter. Now, granted, a Western Oregon winter is not quite the same beast as a New England winter, but nonetheless, you know, we do have our freezing days, and we do learn just how tough these little critters are, honestly. Right. Now, you just touched on some misinformation about hummingbirds, you know, in talking about how long to leave the feeders up. And I was wondering, maybe we could tackle a few more bits of misinformation. Could you maybe address what many people believe to be how hummingbirds subsist? They, they think they subsist solely on the sugar from nectar feeders. Could you talk about that maybe? Sure, yeah. You know, one of one of the best things I ever read, and I wish I had remembered where I read it and, and would have written it down, but I just don't know the, who, the source of the quote. But someone referred to hummingbirds as sugar-powered flycatchers. So essentially, a hummingbird needs two things to survive. It needs meat and it needs sugar. And so it spends all that sugar in its high-speed pursuit of meat, essentially, and other reasons. But hummingbirds eat great quantities of tiny insects and arachnids and other little creatures like that. So when you see a hummingbird sitting on a, a favorite perch and suddenly it darts up into the air two or three feet and then returns to its perch, probably what you just witnessed was a hummingbird grabbing an insect out of the air. And they, they do a lot of their insect catching in flight, most of it in flight. And their beaks are sort of like little little chopsticks in a way. They, they open their beak like a fly-catching bird and snap it shut over the, the insect so quickly you don't even know what happened. And uh, so, so small insects and arachnids and things like that are a very important part of the hummingbird diet, a critical part of the hummingbird diet. What would you say is the ratio of insects to nectar for the hummingbird? I don't know if I've ever read anything definitive on that, but... There's no question they spend about when I watch them in my yard, I see them spend every bit as much time hunting insects as they do feeding at the flowers and the feeders. So it's it's obviously a critical part of their diet and they invest considerable energy in doing that. If you start recognizing that behavior and, and kind of watching for that behavior, then you'll you'll soon learn when you are witnessing insect catching. Sometimes you'll watch a hummingbird sort of hovering around flowers with, or, or plants with no flowers and getting in close and, and sort of inspecting leaves, well, probably what that hummingbird is doing is snatching little tiny bugs off that flower or near that flower or that plant. I mean, sometimes you'll see them doing the same thing high up in trees. They'll be hovering around deep in the foliage, and undoubtedly what they're doing in that case is gleaning insects. Sometimes they'll be hovering around up in the eaves of, of your carport or something like that or around your house. They'll even pluck little insects from spider webs and, in fact, tiny spiders themselves. Right. Now, could you talk about the ideal recipe for making sugar water for hummingbirds? What do you recommend? Well, Catherine, that's a that's a, a great question and a very important question. So when I was researching the hummingbird handbook, I reached out to a lot of different experts on the topic. 
And everybody agreed that from what we know now, we should all be sticking to a four to one ratio of water to sugar. You will hear other opinions sometimes, people saying, well, if it's really cold weather, go to three to one. Or if it's really hot weather, go to five to one. But invariably, the experts I, I spoke to said, no, keep it at four to one because that's the closest approximation we have to flower nectar in terms of sugar content. And critically, your water sugar mixture needs to be kept immaculately fresh and your feeders need to be kept incredibly clean. One of the great concerns about uh, amongst the experts I spoke with was that we be careful we don't do more harm than good when we're feeding hummingbirds out of artificial feeders. When sugar water sits too long, it begins to ferment, and it begins to grow mold. And that mold is decidedly unhealthy for hummingbirds. And one, and actually, I, I think, Catherine, you have a background in wildlife rehabilitation, correct? Yes. So one of the rehabilitators I spoke with who lives in California told me that probably more than 10% of the, the hummingbirds that come into her facility are there because they've been poisoned by black mold. From hummingbird right. feeders. That's so true. I, think I, get it's, quite a, I get quite a number of hummingbirds with uh, mold toxicity mm-hmm. from feeders. So I, think, I always, I, you know, hummingbird, feeding hummingbirds sugar water is just a great source of joy, but it also carries with it an extensive responsibility. We have to be very careful that we don't do more harm than good. And if anyone has any questions about whether they have time to maintain hummingbird feeders, making sure that those feeders are immaculately clean making sure they're only using fresh sugar water. If you question your ability to commit that time, you're way better off planting flowers for them. And you don't even have to build a whole garden. You know, if you don't have the space or the time to maintain a garden, potted flowers are great for hummingbirds. And they'll, if you plant the right flowers in the right habitat, they will find you. Right. And I often say to people, too, if you're worried about having time to keep things immaculately clean, instead of putting out six, seven, eight feeders, just put out one or two and just make sure you have clean feeders in the house ready to go. So yeah, that definitely. You're, you're not rushing through things to get the nectar back out to the hummingbirds. Yeah, it's so easy to have a rotation system like that, where if you've got two feeders outside, keep two clean ones inside. And it's also, it's a lot easier just to never let them get dirty than it is to have to keep cleaning them. So if your hummingbird feeder has gotten to the point where you think, I really need to clean that, then it's definitely been out too long. I find it a lot easier just uh, every day when I fill the feeders to give them a a good rinsing and and go right back to business with fresh sugar water, which I'll keep for a couple days. And, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of hummingbirds around here, but let's keep that in perspective. My friend Tim down in Arizona, he works and lives at one of the famous birdwatching hotspots down there, and he has five times my hummingbirds, so you can imagine how busy he is with his feeders. But, you know, flowers do a wonderful job, too, and I've proven during my gardening life that I can kill just about any kind of plant, but the nice thing is, you know, when you're when I, when I tell people to, to garden for pollinators, to garden for hummingbirds specifically, it's not that difficult, you know. There's a lot of these flowers, like bee balm is a great example. Another one that I use is Agastache, which is hummingbird mint. You know, those flowers have been really easy to grow. They don't require $20 bags of designer dirt. They don't use a lot of water. Once you get them established, they're sort of self-maintaining. And uh, so they're, they're pretty easy. And then there's other, other varieties that I use that I've had equal success with that the hummingbirds love, you know, but you do have to match them to your climate zone, of course. You know, I have one that I have a, I think I have the world's largest hot lip salvia bush, Catherine. 
Uh, yeah, so hot lip salvia is uh, salvia is mostly our hot weather plants, warm weather plants, but they're absolute hummingbird magnets. And one of the cultivars is called hot lip salvia, and it's a hummingbird favorite. But mine is now five feet tall and six feet in diameter. It must have, I mean, it has thousands of blooms on it. The hummingbirds fight over it all day long. So. <laughs> but, that is great. Yeah, you know, but but if you don't have time, if you don't have the space to put plants like that in the ground, put them in pots. You know, get a few pots and, and plant some hummingbird favorites. And, you know, like I said, consider that you're, you're going to try to have flowers that bloom throughout the summer from spring through fall. You know, a little bit of variety helps. You know, people will say, well, do they have to be red? Well, hummingbirds have photoreceptors that are well designed to pick out red shades and oranges and pinks. But uh, sure, you can plant some red tubular flowers to draw them in. But if your favorite salvia or your favorite penstenum happens to be purple or pink or white, if it has a good nectar content, they're going to find it and they're going to use it. I was going to say the other great thing about plants for the hummingbirds is they get the nectar from the blossoms, but then the plants also attract insects. So it's sort of a two for one. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of fun to, to when you start understanding what they're doing to watch them gleaning insects from those same plants where they're also finding the flowers for the nectar. You learn a few things, at least I have, trying to, you know, to cater to hummingbirds in the garden. One of my favorite early season bloomers are the columbines. And as you know, in the east, there's a, a common widespread native columbine or red columbine. And in the far west, there's a, another species of red columbine that's a widespread native. But my first, the first columbines I planted were a cultivar that was uh, kind of similar to the red columbines, and then another cultivar that was probably based on the Colorado blue columbine. So the red one had very short spurs, and the big blue one had very long spurs. So the spurs are those, those trailing parts off the back of a columbine that make them so attractive, but that's also where the nectar is held. And at first, I, I couldn't figure out why the hummingbirds really didn't want anything to do with my purple columbines. And then I realized the spurs are too long. They've uh, bred this cultivar to have these beautiful long spurs, but essentially that puts the nectar kind of out of reach for hummingbirds. Even though they have a long bill and a long tongue, it's just too much work for them. The bumblebees loved them, but they're not after nectar, they're after pollen. So I, I realized that I'd, you know, I'd learned on the job there something I had not even considered, but... In light of that, I started only selecting columbines that have short spurs, and the hummingbirds love them. And that includes our, our two native species, our two widespread native species, the western red columbine and the eastern red columbine. Right. So now, just swinging back to feeders, let's say someone comes out to check their feeder and there is mold. What do you recommend for cleaning? Well, so that's a somewhat contentious topic, I suppose, but I pulled a lot of different experts on this when I was when I was writing the book, and they all agreed on one thing. You can use a mild bleach solution, but wh whatever you do, you have to scrub. You have to use little scrub brushes, but you can use a, a mild bleach solution, a mild detergent solution, or even some people say a mild vinegar solution with little scrub brushes to scrub out every little port and, and all parts of the feeder, but the critical thing is rinsing. No matter what cleaning method or product you use, it has to be completely and thoroughly rinsed so that there's no residue left. So that's the important part. So personally, if I do end up having a feeder that really needs a good cleaning, honestly, my favorite method is to put it in the dishwasher with no detergent whatsoever and just let the heat and the steam do the trick. But I will clean them by hand as well to, you know, sometimes you have to remove little bits of, of debris or mold from the ports and things like that. And I'll use about a 10% bleach solution and then rinse them very thoroughly and let them dry completely. Right. So soap is not the greatest idea. 
it's harder to, to rinse thoroughly, unfortunately. So, yeah, I, I found it it's just a little bit more troublesome to use. Even mild dish soap or something is a little bit more troublesome to completely rinse. Right. It's so concentrated. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a type of feeder that you think is best for hummingbirds that you could recommend to our listeners? Yeah. You know, my favorite are the saucer-style feeders. And I don't have any commercial relationship with any manufacturers, so we'll put that right out there. But I will recommend that the little humzinger saucer-style feeders are my favorite and the favorite of a lot of other people for a couple reasons. First, they're extremely easy. The lid pops off. You fill the reservoir and pop the lid back on. There's four little ports. Well, there's, there's other sizes, but there's little ports in the plastic lid. Super easy to clean. The whole thing is super easy to clean because it's just not it's not complicated. But also, they are built in a way that makes them naturally bee-proof because the ports in the, in the lid sit too high above the level of the fluid in your feeder for the bees to get to, so they don't even try. They come with an ant moat built in, which is a little circle in the middle that you fill with water so the, the ants can't swarm the, the ports. So they're pretty pest-free, which makes the, you know, which is another, another plus. And there's a variety of other feeders out there made by many different companies. And I think when you're, when you're choosing a feeder, those are sort of the things you want to consider. How easy is it going to be to clean and maintain? And how easy is it going to be to keep bees and ants and other pests out of the, uh, the feeder so the hummingbirds can use it? Right. A feeder where you cannot see or access certain portions is kind of dangerous. Makes it very difficult to clean, yeah, because you really want to be able to visually inspect the whole thing. Right. And the other thing, you know, there, there are some feeders, like the bottle-style feeders, some of those you have to invert them to fill them and then flip them back over, you know, when, when you're hanging them. And that's all fine and good depending on location. So I started a small hummingbird garden in a, in a corner of my house that needed a little upgrade. And while I was working on it, I put a, a shepherd's hook up and I put a, a bottle-style feeder up, one of the kinds you have to fill while it's inverted and then flip it over. And within about a month of planting my first uh, hummingbird mints, I realized two of them were not doing well at all. And it turns out there was nests of what looked like sugar ants, or probably pavement ants, down in their root structures. And I think that I think that the drippings from the hummingbird feeder had attracted the ants and given them a food source they weren't willing to leave. So I realized, yeah, that's not a good place for a, a hummingbird feeder at all, but especially one that's going to drip sugar water. Right. Wow. So now, as we wrap up today, if you could tell us what your view of the future is for hummingbirds, what is your sense of how hummingbirds are doing and how they're going to do in the future? You know, Catherine, it seems to depend a great deal on on the species, of course. Fortunately, the, the birds, the hummingbirds that we have here in the United States are doing pretty well, it seems, if, you know, if, if you're paying attention to Cornell and some of their research. But that's not true everywhere. And, and you know, in, in Central America and South America, with a significant amount of deforestation happening every year, there are some species of hummingbirds that are probably in big trouble, unfortunately, and some of them are, you know, our red list species. But overall, I'm pretty optimistic, at least in terms of our, our American humming, our, our North American hummingbird species. And I think that's important because... I view hummingbirds as little portals into the, the natural world. What I mean by that is I've learned since this book came out that so many people are fascinated by hummingbirds, even people who really don't have much interest in bird watching or in, in other sorts of, of natural phenomena and, and ecology. 
So hummingbirds sort of have this this power to draw us in. And to me, that means that they're imbued with this power to maybe bring some converts into the fold. People who say, you know, they discover the natural world through a fascination with hummingbirds. And by discovering the natural world, they become more involved and more interested in it and more curious about it. And that's sort of where our advocates come from. If we can't get young people especially interested in the outdoors and interested in ecology, then where do our future advocates come from? So that's the, the thing I see that's so special about these hummingbirds is they are imbued with this, this power to be portals into the natural world for people that might otherwise never discover the natural world. I'd like to thank John Shuey for joining us today. You can order his new book, The Hummingbird Handbook, published by Timber Press, at local bookstores or go to Amazon.com. You can also go directly to TimberPress.com. And you can find out more about John and his nature books and bird photography by going to birdingoregon.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.